we started talking about the subject of resurrection, the 13th of 13 principles of faith of Rambam. Rambam codified for us what is the framework of our religion, not just who we are as a nation, our people, but also our ideology. What are the principles? What are the foundations? What are the basic tenets upon which our religion exists? And Rambam enumerates for us 13 major principles. And of course, this was hotly debated in its time, but it became ubiquitously accepted. These are the principles of our faith. They are incorporated into our prayer books. They are undisputed. And principle number 13 is resurrection. And we started talking about it. And in our first episode, we we surveyed it to try to get a little bit more comfortable with the general subject. And last time, we tried to go a little bit deeper to get closer to the heart of the matter. And we talked about why it is a standalone principle and not just a detail in one of the other principles. And the main principle or the main concept that we emerged with last time was that the essence of resurrection is that it is heavenly. It is from the Torah. It is supernatural. It is not from this world. And therefore, if we find all these very bright Roman aristocrats rejecting it and providing very compelling evidence why it cannot be that there is resurrection, that we accept. Because we don't say that resurrection is a feature of our world. It's a feature of the Torah in a way that has not yet been established in our world. That was last time. Today, I want to get down to more particulars. And I want to venture with Yal into much trickier waters and attempt to try to disentangle some of the more challenging and unclear elements of this principle. And what we're going to come out with today is one idea that's going to be undisputed, but cascading out of that are all these other questions that we're going to try to address to the best of our abilities as we proceed in this very important and final installment of the 13 Principles. And I want to begin with the following angle. When Rambam was talking about the principle, resurrection, one of the ideas that he was insistent upon is that resurrection is exclusively for the righteous. And he differentiates. He says, well, we have resurrection and we have rain. And there's a difference. Rain, it's for everyone. Everyone benefits from the rain, the righteous and the wicked alike. However, resurrection, which last time we talked about how it is similar to rain in some ways, resurrection, it's only for the righteous. That was Rambam when he talked about this principle. And there are many other sources that resurrection is only for the righteous. So, for example, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin on page 92a, and again, a lot of the discussion that exists in the Talmud on resurrection will be around 90, 91, 92, 93 of the book of Sanhedrin. Those are the pages of Talmud dedicated to this subject. The Talmud says very clearly, Tzadikim, the righteous, that the Almighty will resurrect 
they will not subsequently die. Well, more precisely, they will not subsequently return to their dust. doesn't say that they won't die, which may be an important detail later on. But the Talmud does say explicitly that those who are resurrected, the tzaditim that will be resurrected, will not return to their dust. Again, we see like the Rambam, that resurrection is exclusively for the tzaddikim. In both previous episodes, we quoted the exchange between Cleopatra the Queen and Rabbi Meir. And she asked him, when the people are resurrected, will they be dressed or will they be naked? And Rabbi Meir responds with an analogy from the wheat. You, you bury the wheat, you bury it naked. And when it emerges, it emerges with lots of layers of chaff. So it goes in naked and it comes out clothed. The righteous, which go into the ground clothed, certainly will emerge clothed in resurrection. Now, we, of course, took that exchange in a few different ways. Primarily, we took the idea that there's a parallel between death and burial and planting. Burial is a form of planting. And just as you plant a seed, maybe a wheat seed in the ground, it emerges in maybe a different way, but in a similar way, that is what burial is, and that's the resurrection. Resurrection is the sprouting from the ground of what was buried. But if you read the words very precisely, when Rabbi Meir responds, he says, that tzaddikim, that are buried with their clothing, certainly when they emerge, they emerge with clothing. And again, he doesn't say just people who will emerge. He details that this is exclusively for the tzaddikim. And there are other sources as well that resurrection is solely for the righteous, the sources that the Rama brings and the other sources that we added to that from the Talmud. It seems to be that there's no debate about this point. Resurrection it's not universal. It is solely, it is exclusively for the righteous. However, there is yet another conversation between a great rabbi and a Roman emperor about resurrection. This one we have not yet talked about. And this is going to clarify an element of resurrection for us, but it's going to complicate a different matter. The Talmud records a conversation between the Roman Emperor Antoninus, most likely this is Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was Roman Emperor in the end of the second century, and Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi Judah the Prince, of course, is a very important figure in our history. He is the chief architect of the Mishnah. He is a great-great-great-grandson of Hillel. He was the president of the Jewish people. He's a very pivotal figure in our history. And the Talmud tells us that they were colleagues and they were friends and there was a, there was a tunnel connecting the palaces of these respective leaders, the, the Roman leader and the Jewish leader, and they would study Torah together. And we have a tradition that Antoninus actually converted, became a Jew. But the Talmud cites a series of very intriguing 
debates, effectively, that these two luminaries held. And one of them is about resurrection. And it starts off like this. Antoninus tells Rabbi Judah the Prince that the body and the soul can each exempt themselves from judgment. How so? The body can make a very credible claim that it is not guilty for its sins. The body will say, well, it wasn't me who sinned. You have the wrong guy. It is the soul. Because ever since the soul left me, I'm like a rock. I'm inanimate. I'm stuck in this grave. I can't do anything. So it must be that the soul was the one who sinned. Before death, we did some sins together. But really, the soul was responsible. How can you blame me? If it's just me, look, I'm completely inept in the grave. The soul can also exempt itself. The soul will say, well, it wasn't me who sinned. It was the body. Because ever since I departed from the body, I'm flying in the air like a bird. I'm not capable of doing any sins. So it was the body that sinned. So each one independently can deflect blame. Each one can pin culpability for the sins on the other one. We know, of course, a human is a hybrid of opposites, the body and the soul. And death, by definition, is the separation of these opposite components. The body goes into the ground like a rock. The soul flies up in heaven like a bird. How is there judgment? After the separation, there cannot be any judgment, says Antoninus. Each half can legitimately, reasonably, credibly claim that it was the other half that was the real cause, the real catalyst of the sin. Each side could point to its current ineffectualness, ineptitude, and say, it wasn't me that sinned. I wasn't the cause. The cause is the other guy. How can there be judgment? That is Antoninus' question, Brilliant loophole. Sounds very convincing. And the prince responds with an analogy, with a parable. He says there was a human king who had a very beautiful orchard, orchard full of very prime choice figs, fruits. And the king, of course, wanted these fruits to be preserved. So he hired some guards. One guard was blind. One guard was lame. And he appointed them to guard this orchard. And the lame guard told the blind guard, you can't see, but I can And I see these most incredible and luscious and delectable and sumptuous fruits. I can't reach it because I'm I'm lame. But you can. Let's make a deal. You give me a little piggyback ride because you can't see it, but you can walk. 
and I'll go snatch all the fruits and we'll eat them. We'll have a good time together. And that's what they did. The lame guard climbed up on top of the blind guard and they went around the orchard snacking on the king's fruits. Sometime later, the king comes and says, where are my fruits? And the lame guard tells the king, look at me. I'm not the one who ate them. Look at me. I don't have any legs. I can't possibly go and reach that. I'm not the criminal. And the blind guy points to, blind guard points to his lack of sight. It couldn't have been me. I would bump into every tree. This is obviously I wasn't the one who did it. So what did the king do? The king, of course, understood what happened. He says, okay, we're doing the pity back again. He takes the lame guard and makes him go as a pity back on top of the blind guard and judges them as one. So too, says Rabbi Judah the Prince to Antoninus, the Holy One, blessed is he, God, will take the soul and throw it into the body and judge them as one. And cites a verse to prove this. God will call up to the heavens above and to the earth below to judge. The heavens above, that's the soul. The earth below, that is the body. They'll come together for judgment. Fascinating discussion in the Talmud. Antoninus, brilliant loophole. Brilliant question. Body and soul cannot be blamed for their crimes. Because each one on their own is not guilty, is incapable of being guilty. Says Rabbi Judah the Prince, there's an analogy. There's the blind and there's the lame. The soul can see. But the soul cannot walk. It's like the bird flying in the air. The body cannot see. It's blind. But it can walk. And the sin was caused by both of them together. And therefore the punishment will be in the same format as the sin. Just as the crime of consuming from these fruits was done when there was this piggyback, so too the judgment must happen in that same orientation. The body and soul will once again be reunited for judgment. This, as I mentioned, it's going to help clarify some things for us, but complicate some other things for us. We have some clarification here. The Talmud is talking about resurrection. That's the context of the whole Talmud. And the Talmud explicitly says, Rabbi the Prince says, well, the Almighty will take the soul from heaven above and the body from earth below and put them together. And here we see a reason. When they're separate, there cannot be judgment. You cannot have ultimate judgment without the unification of body and soul. So for the first time, we have a clear reason why we need at least one dimension of resurrection. We talked about reward and punishment endlessly in our studies here. You recall we divided up the 13 principles into three batches, three tranches, and the final four are all about reward and punishment. So reward and punishment, that's that's central. 
And Antoninus argues very persuasively that there cannot be reward and punishment. Well, he talks about punishment, but we'll see later on that's also reward. There cannot be punishment when body and soul are separate. Says the Bishop of the Prince, they don't have to remain separate. They will be reunited. Resurrection, at least the way described here, it's indispensable for punishment. And as we shall see, for reward as well. Otherwise, the body and soul can each evade judgment. So we have some clarity, at least for one element of resurrection, and that is that it facilitates judgment. But this also complicates matters for us. Who is resurrected in this analogy? What is the context of this resurrection? It's punishment for the criminals, for the wicked, for the blind and lame guards who feasted on the king's prime figs. It's for the guards who violated the orchard owner's wishes. It's for the body and soul who were sinners, who didn't listen to the Almighty. Wait a minute. I thought you told me that resurrection is only for the righteous. Rambam insisted upon that. Rain, that's for everyone. Resurrection, that's only for the righteous. And again, we saw a bunch of teachings in the Talmud. They made it clear. Resurrection is exclusively, solely for the righteous. And here we see in this debate and discussion between Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antonius, the Talmud makes it abundantly clear that the wicked are resurrected. Otherwise, the landowner will not be able to exact punishment from the blind and lame guards. And therefore God takes the soul and thrusts it again into the body and judges them as one. So how can Rambam and the bevy of other sources that we cited, how can they say clearly that resurrection is exclusively for the righteous? It has to be for the wicked as well. Now I say as well because Antoninus' question and Rabbi the Prince's answer, that would mandate resurrection for the righteous as well. Think about it. This whole argument is telling us that the body and soul must be connected for the consequences of their deeds that they did together to be adjudicated, to be meted out. By the same token, you can imagine that the argument can be made that the body and soul need to be reunified for reward. Just as you cannot pin culpability on either body or soul for sin, each can legitimately deflect blame on the other, the same can be argued about reward. You need the body and soul, both of them, for sin. Therefore, punishment is infeasible without reunification. And you need body and soul to do the mitzvah as well. And therefore, the reward is the byproduct of body and soul. The body could say, I did the mitzvah, because look at the soul, it hasn't done any mitzvah since we were separated. And the soul could say, well, I did the mitzvah, because look at the body, it has not done any mitzvahs since we separated. So both body and soul together are guilty in the crime of sin against God, the orchard owner in our analogy. 
And similarly, in the event that the guards, the lame and the blind guards, listened to the orchard owner, and he would come to reward them, they can only be rewarded in what they did together. So that's important to know as well, that when it comes to reward and punishment, we need body and soul together, both for reward and for punishment. But one thing is clear from this Talmud, undeniably so, there is resurrection for the wicked. And this brings us to a central point. And I said at the onset, we're going to have one ironclad principle that is going to be clear. And out of that, the consequences of that are going to be the next, uh, the next phase of our investigation. There are two, at least two, at least two resurrections. One of them is indeed exclusively for the righteous. And one of them is for everyone. And I I don't want you to think too precisely about the words I'm going to say right now because there's a subtlety that I'm not conveying now. But there are at least two resurrections and they're going to be on different timelines. There's one resurrection in the times of Messiah that will be exclusively for the righteous. And there's a second resurrection that's going to be in the lead up to Olamaba. And that will be for everyone. Two resurrections with two very different eligibility criteria and at different points in the timeline and for different objectives. There is a resurrection in the times of Messiah. And again, don't be too precise with the words. We'll we'll try to see what that means. And there is a resurrection in the run-up, in the preparatory stages for Olam Haba, for the world to come. This principle, I cannot find anyone that argues in it. But it's, f- it's found in the literature. So, for example, Tanad Belio, this is the Midrashic literature. It talks about the resurrection. Bain Limos Ben David, Bain Lomaba. Both in the times of, in, in, the, in the days of the son of David, Ayy Messiah, and in Olamaba. That is found in Tanad Belio 3. In the same source, in chapter 5, it says, the the resurrection of the dead, in the times of David, it is in order to provide reward for those who love God and those who fear God. Again, times of Ben David, son of David, times of Messiah, it's only for those who love God, who fear God, for the righteous. And the resurrection of the dead for that is to facilitate judgment and reckoning. There will be a resurrection for the wicked, but that's not as a form of reward. 
to give reward for those who love and fear God, that's to create the capacity for a judgment and a reckoning for people's deeds. And there is a verse in Daniel as well that a lot of the citations quote. Many of those who are sleeping in the ground will wake up. These for eternal life and these for reproachment, for castigation, for eternal ignominy. So there will be a resurrection, but for very different directions, either for eternal life, reward, or for punishment. And I'll just throw in an idea that there's a very interesting point over here, that this resurrection in the future, it's one resurrection perhaps, a single re- resurrection, but with different outcomes. The righteous will direct them to Omaba and the wicked will be raised for eternal ignominy. But there is a resurrection for everyone, and there's also a a resurrection exclusively for the righteous, those who love God and fear Him. And when Rambam is talking about resurrection, and the Talmud as well, when they are talking about it being exclusively for the righteous, they're not addressing the kind of resurrection that is universal, they're talking only about the resurrection for the righteous. And that begins in the times of Messiah. Now again, just a quick reminder. When we talk about Olam Abba, the world to come, it's completely, well, almost completely incomparable to our world. The Talmud says that there's really no way to describe Olam Abba to someone who has the frames of reference of Olam Azav, this world. Rambam famously tells us that if you have a blind person and you try to describe to them the difference between orange and yellow and purple and green, it doesn't make any sense to them. There's no frame of reference that they have that will enable them to understand what the differences are between these colors. They, they, they don't have the experience, they don't have the vocabulary to understand what that means. Regarding Olam we are blind. We cannot really understand it. And yes, the Talmud worked to try to find some sort of similarities that can help us at least understand what we don't understand. But Olam is a different universe. And there's going to be a resurrection for the purposes of Olam But there's also a resurrection exclusively for the righteous for the times of Messiah. Messiah is not a different universe. It's our universe. It's our world. It's terra firma. It's bodies and souls. It's, we still do mitzvos. It's just a perfected time. It's a refined time. It's a, a time of World peace, temple being built, the mitzvahs being done. It's this world that has been upgraded and fixed and perfected with the kingdom of God, as we say in the Aleinu prayer. 
The Talmud even says that there's really no difference between this world and the times of Messiah. The only difference is, is that in our world, we are subjugated to foreign rulers, whereas in times of Messiah, we are not subjugated to foreign rulers. And again, we spoke about this at great length in our 16-part explication of Messiah. And I know this to be a bit confusing, and I'm, I'm always trying to simplify. And please, God, we will try to clarify and simplify to the best of our ability. But what we need to know at this point is that the sages are in agreement that there are two resurrections, meaning resurrection is not a monolithic transformation. It exists on multiple levels and multiple dimensions. And at least some of our subject exists in the times of Messiah. I want you to understand what we can learn about the Messianic resurrection. And we'll start with Jacob. At the end of Genesis, Jacob is about to die, and he's very desirous of not being buried in Egypt and instead being transferred to Israel, to Canaan, and being buried in the cave of the patriarchs. This is the end of chapter 47 in Genesis. He summons Joseph and makes the request. And indeed, at the very end of the book, in chapter 50, he is transported from Egypt, brought to uh, to Hebron, to the cave of the patriarchs, and interred in the same cave where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, and according to our tradition, of course, Adam and Eve as well are buried there. That's where Jacob is interred. Now, why is Jacob so desirous, so insistent on not being buried in Egypt and, yes, being buried in the cave of the patriarchs? So if you look at Rashi commentary, Rashi curates from the Midrash three different reasons. The first is because Jacob knew prophetically that Egypt will be crawling with lice, with the ten plagues. He didn't want that all over his body, so he said, take me out of here. The third reason that Rashi brings is that Jacob, when he came to the land of Egypt, the famine stopped. And Jacob was a great hero in Egypt, and he was worried that if he died there and was buried there, he will be deified there. And therefore, to not become a deity for the Egyptians, Jacob wanted out of there. The second reason, it's going to open up a new uh, angle for us. Those who die outside of the land will not be resurrected only through the pain of rolling through the tunnels. Jacob didn't want the experience of resurrection that is accorded to those buried or maybe who die outside the land of Israel. Those who are resurrected outside of the land, they're not resurrected there. No one's going to emerge in Egypt or in New Jersey, or in Lithuania, they first have to get 
to the Holy Land and the Almighty will make tunnels for them, but they need to roll the whole way and that's painful. Resurrection happens only in the land and therefore you have to get there underground before you emerge in the land. That's the second reason why Rashi tells us Jacob did not want to be buried in Egypt and yes, instead want to be buried in the land. Now, Rashi did not make this up. This is a citation from the Midrash. When you look at the actual text of the Midrash, it elaborates a bit more. It says, Why was Jacob, and by extension all the forefathers, so desirous of being buried in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel? Because those who die in the land they will be resurrected first in the days of Messiah. And they will benefit from the Messianic days. So he tells us two things. First of all, that the expected resurrection is in the times of Messiah. So again, more confirmation that there is resurrection in the times of Messiah. And if you're buried inside the land... You get out first. And without the pain of having to roll, whatever that means, through these subterranean tunnels from wherever you were interred to the land. Continues the Midrash. What about those who are buried outside the land? Some people, they're buried there. It's not their fault. Tells us the Midrash. God will make tunnels for them. And they will be like caves, and they will roll, and they will come until they arrive at the land of Eretz Yisrael. And then, then, once they're there, God will give them a spirit of light, of life, and they will ascend. They will stand up. So the Midrash is very clear that the, the roll happens before the resurrection. They're not alive for the roll. Maybe it's still painful. But they first roll and then they have a spirit of life infused in them. And this is what Jacob sought to avoid. Don't bury me in the land of Egypt. Instead, take me to the Holy Land and bury me in the cave of the patriarchs. And let me just continue just because this is interesting. There was a story of Rabbi Judah the Prince and Rabbi Eliezer that they were traveling in the outskirts of Tiberias and they saw a funeral. Someone was transported from outside the land, from the diaspora, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel. So just as Jacob was desirous of this, historically, many people were. And of course, Joseph as well. Joseph was buried and he told told the nation, make sure you take my bones and bury them in the Holy Land. Now there's a debate over here. Did someone who dies out of the land and is transported in a box to the land, do they garner the benefits? So Rabbi Judah the Prince says, well, what, what help does it do? What benefit is there? You died out of the land and now you're coming to glean the benefits? And he cites two verses 
really one verse, but two points of a verse in Jeremiah, our people neglected the land in their lifetime, and now they want to come and defile the land in their death? It's inappropriate, says the prince. You weren't there in your lifetime, and now you want to come in? No, you're not going to get any benefits. And Rabbi Lezer responded, no, even if you die outside the land, but you have the great privilege of being buried inside the land, the Almighty will forgive you, quotes a verse to support that point. But the news tells us, in the times of Messiah, the righteous will emerge in the land. And therefore, Jacob understood it's better to be there already and to avoid having to endure the rolling from wherever you were interred to the land. And those who are buried inside the land of Israel, they will emerge first. Meaning, if you are outside, you have to deal with, A, the tunnels, whatever that means, but you also will be delayed in the travel to the land. How long before those who have to roll through the tunnel are those who are already interred in the land resurrected? The Midrash doesn't say. But other sources tell us that those who are buried in the land of Israel, like Jacob, others, they will emerge in resurrection in the times of Messiah 40 years before those who are buried outside the land. Of course, 40 years, that's a very specific number. It's the same amount of time that it took the nation from the Exodus until they got to the land. It seems to imply, again, I'm just spitballing here, that there is a version of going through the wilderness for 40 years, going through those tunnels, whatever that means, until they arrive in the land. However, listen to this. If someone dies outside the land, but they have a relative inside the land, a close relative, an immediate relative, one of the relatives that you have to mourn over, the relative inside the land can effectuate a an accelerated resurrection for those who are buried outside the land. And when, I, when I thought about this, and you'll forgive me for this, this is like an anchor baby. <laughs> an anchor baby, which I know is a controversial term. But this idea of you sponsoring your family member, so to speak. One family member sponsors the other family members in resurrection. Amazing. Continues the source. This is found in the Kabbalistic literature in a um, very esoteric source, but it is cited from the most reputable of Kabbalistic sources. This is the meaning behind the Talmud that says that the righteous themselves will effectuate resurrection. Why? 
because those who were resurrected in the land earlier, 40 years earlier, before everyone else arrives from outside the land, they will be able to accelerate the resurrection of their relatives. Okay, so again, this is, it's, it's an exotic side point. But we see in the Talmud that there is resurrection, in the Midrash, that is, there is resurrection in times of Messiah. It is earlier than the resurrection of those, I'm sorry, it is earlier for those who were buried in the land than those who arrived from outside the land via the tunnel system. And now we have a timeline, maybe even 40 years, which is a significant amount of time that the people who were buried inside the land will benefit and enjoy the times of Messiah prior to the arrival of the immigrants, so to speak, who had to come through the tunnel system. I'll add another exotic side point. Something absolutely amazing. In the Maharal, in his commentary to the aforementioned Rashi at the end of Genesis chapter 30, chapter 47, Jacob didn't want to be buried in the land of Egypt. He wanted to go to the land of the patriarchs of Canaan, of Israel. And he wanted to also be buried specifically in the cave of the patriarchs. The morale explains that the actual resurrection is not in the entirety of the land. It's specifically through that one cave. All of those who are resurrected are coming out of that cave, the cave of the patriarchs. And for the same reason why Jacob did not want to be buried in Egypt, he didn't want to be buried anywhere else in the land. He wanted specifically to the closest point of resurrection, namely to that same cave. And this is a very interesting maharal because he adds to this point, he says, as is explicit in the Midrash. And the problem is, is that you examine all the Midrashic literature and we don't find the source of this Midrash. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. I found an article online that cited a newspaper interview with the editor of the expanded Maharal that includes all the sources. And it has this amazing story how he tried everywhere and asked everyone to find the source. And no one knew the source. And then he met the great Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky of blessed memory, who was the greatest Torah sage in the world. And he says, where's the source? And he said, they had a few minute conversation. And the great rabbi is going through in his head all of Talmud. And he says, after some seconds of contemplation, it's not in the Babylonian Talmud. A few seconds later, he says, well, it's not in the Jerusalem Talmud. Most of us, it would take a lifetime to finish one of those, much less to know it. But this great sage is kind of filtering through the entire Talmud in his head in, his head in seconds. It's not in the Midrash, the great Midrash, the Midrash Rabbah. It's not in the Tehuma. It's not in the Yalkut. It's not in this other kind of Midrash, the Midrash Halacha, Michilta, etc., and then he says, I think I know where it is. Now, this article does not cite the source 
It made me a little upset. It didn't cite the actual source. And there's a debate as to what the source actually is. It seems like it's in the Kabbalistic sources, and the article didn't want to talk about these more esoteric, arcane books. But this is a fascinating insight cited by Maharal, that there is a portal for resurrection, and it's only one, and it's only that cave of the patriarchs. So again, what, what do we have today? We have so far an understanding that there are many different types, or at least several major types of resurrection. There's one for judgment for everyone, and there's one for the righteous, and that begins in times of Messiah. Let's go a little bit further here. When the Midrash talks about Jacob desiring to be buried in the land to have a more expedited resurrection in the times of Messiah, it says that the reason why there is this resurrection is to enjoy the benefits of the times of Messiah. Times of Messiah, it's a utopian time. It's an idyllic time. And of course, there are people that will be alive at the onset of Messiah. And they'll get to experience it if they're worthy of it. But what about all the people that died in the past? The great sages, the great tzaddikim, people who labored their entire life to try to bring about the Messiah. It's only appropriate if they get to participate in it and to witness it, to see the fruits of their labor, to see the ingathering of the exiles and to see the temple, to bring sacrifices and to see the elevation of the nation's prestige and to see the fixed world. Moreover, what's the goal of Messiah in general? We spoke about this again when we talked about Messiah. The goal of Messiah is to facilitate and enable people to earn Olam Abba. That's why the righteous, the sages, the prophets were desirous of Messiah, Rambam told us. And therefore, it would not be fair for someone to go in a villain and never brought a sacrifice. Should he lose out? The Rambam never brought a sacrifice. Wasn't around in the times of, times of Messiah and times of the temple. And therefore, there's a part, uh, there's a mitzvah he never fulfilled. He gets resurrected, is able to bring a sacrifice in the temple and to achieve the element of refinement and transformation that will better position someone for Olam Abba. The Talmud has a fascinating discussion about the inauguration of the priests in the times of the Torah, the the Mishkan. And we know the book of Leviticus tells us how Moshe got the priestly family. So Aaron and his four sons, he dressed them as Kohanim. And Thomas says, what's the order? What was the sequencing of Moshe initially dressing Aaron and his sons? This is in the book of Yoma, page 5b. 
And then Talmud says, why does this matter? Like, are we just trying to deal with ancient history? Who cares what happened 3,000, you know, 300 years ago? Says Talmud, no, 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 no. We want to know what the proper sequencing is for when Messiah comes and temples rebuilt and we have Kohanim, we have to get them dressed. So we need to know the halacha for that time. Says the Talmud, no, no, no. Even for that time, you don't need the halacha. You don't need to know what the proper sequencing and order of the donning of the garments is. Why? Because then Aaron will be around. He will be resurrected. Moshe will be around. He will be resurrected. And they, they could do it again. They, they know how to do it. We don't need to know how to do it. That's what the Talmud says. So again, we have clear, indisputable evidence that at least a resurrection will happen in the times of, of Messiah. Moshe will be there and Aaron and, and his sons and, and Jacob and the forefathers. And they'll be able to know the thing that they need to know. That is the principle that I want to emerge with today. But again, there are a lot of different parts of it that are much less clear. What happens then? There is, of course, some sort of progression from Messiah to the other resurrection to Olam Abba. We talked about the 6,000-year model. See, so like six days and then you have one day of Shabbos. There's 6,000 years. Each day is, each day of God is like a 1,000 years of us. We've seen that in the past. And there's the seventh millennium. And what's that all about? What's that other world? And what's the handoff from Messianic times to Olam Abba? Oh, and what happens to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moshe, to Aaron, to Aaron's sons, in the times of Messiah. What happens to them after they get resurrected? Do they live as normal humans? Are they going to get married again? How will we know who they are? Are they going to die? These questions are all a lot harder for us to answer. And I'll tell you, there's an amazing chapter in a book called Emunos Fideos. So this means like, Emunos is like faith or faith principles and tenets. Written by Sa'ad Yagon, so one of the great Gaonim. And this is in section number seven, chapter eight. And he says, after we spend so much time talking about Messiah and resurrection, I want to talk about the 10 questions that we still have to address. And I'm not going to go through all the details yet, but to just get a little flavor of where we have to go from here, let's go through these uh, these 10 questions. Okay, so there's a resurrection times of Messiah. Well, who is included? What is the cutoff for eligibility? Question number one. Question number two, okay, what happens then? Someone who is resurrected in the times of Messiah, will they die afterwards? Is Moshe going to die a second time before Olam Abba and have a second resurrection in the times of Olam Abba? 
in that run-up to Olmah that we talked about? Where the verse in Daniel separates the two camps, so to speak. Some people are going to be resurrected for eternal life and some for eternal ignominy. Will they not go back to their dust? As the Talmud says. Question number three. This is an interesting one. He says, a third question you may have is, how will all these resurrected people fit in the land? And he does a whole calculation to say how they can actually fit. He's worried about overpopulation, or maybe some people are. A fourth question. Will those who are resurrected, will they recognize their family members? Question five. Someone who was blemished, who had some sort of disability, someone who was lame or blemished in some capacity, deaf or blind, will they emerge with the same disability? Question number six. Times of Messiah are, it's the world like our world. Some people are going to be alive when Messiah comes. It's this world. Now, these people have been dead for a while. So they've been living in a very different dimension. They're coming back here. Are they going to behave like us? They're going to eat and they're going to drink and they're going to get married and have children. That is a sixth question. Seventh question. Well, it's based upon the answer to the seventh, to the sixth question. This is the, he says, yes, they, they will live as, as humans and maybe they'll even get married, but they'll definitely eat and drink and maybe even potentially get married. Now he's of the opinion that they won't die. So there's going to be some sort of, of handoff of crossover between the messianic times where there is food and drink and maybe even marriage to Olmaba, and they're not going to die in between. So how are they going to transition from the times of Messiah, those who were resurrected, the righteous who are resurrected times of Messiah? How will they transition to a world that's very, very different? And he gives a very clever answer to that, that I'm going to leave you in suspense about. The eighth question. People who are resurrected, are they going to have free will? And if they do, what if they make poor choices? Could they imperil their Olamaba with their poor choices? Question number nine. Will they get reward for their mitzvos? And question number 10, what about the people who are alive in the, in the format, in the modality, in the paradigm of this world, the way we know it, and suddenly they're around with all these other people who are resurrected? What is the state of the people that are alive at the time of Messiah and those who are born at the time of Messiah? That is question number 10. And for that, he gives us three different approaches. But again, this is a way of saying... There's a lot more unanswered questions 
that we have now opened up the door to. We know that there is a resurrection times of Messiah. We have a little bit of a sense of what the purpose of that is. We know there's another resurrection. What's that all about? Oh, we know that there's an element of judgment in that for the blind, for the lame, for good and for bad. What are some of the other opinions? This is, we spoke about Sa'adir Gohan's 10 questions and his answers to these 10 questions, but there's a lot more. Another question which we probably will need to spend some time on is the timeline. I, I saw a contradiction in this. I didn't really investigate enough to see if anyone else is talking about this. You recall the Talmud about what was the proper sequencing of the clothing of the priests in the times of Messiah. So Talmud says, well, for the past, we don't need to, ma- we don't need to, we don't need to know why for the past because it's, it's the past. And the future, we don't need to know about that either because Aaron will be back and Moshe will be back. That seems to imply that the resurrection of Aaron, of Moshe, that will happen before the temple is inaugurated, and therefore we don't need to know the sequencing. It's not important for us. It's academic. Why? Because they'll, they'll do it properly. There are other sources that say clearly that the resurrection of the Messiah happens after the temple is rebuilt. So how can the Talmud say, well, it's academic for us to know the sequencing of the inauguration if we already have to have the inauguration and the priests and their dressing and the sequencing of that beforehand? And I will tell you another point. Maybe this is obvious to everyone. We're trying to study this, and it's a matter that's unclear by design, and the sages and the great predecessors, they themselves debated some of the details of this principle. So as we proceed, we may need to make some adjustments or more accurately amendments to what we already concluded. I, I get a sense that we're, we're swimming in the deep end now. What can we take away? There is an ironclad principle. There is a resurrection for the righteous in the times of Messiah. And again, the timeline is maybe a bit unclear. The details are at least initially unclear and potentially disputed. But this is certainly a central element of our principle. Of course, there's a lot more to cover, please God. And I'm looking forward to doing that with y'all, with the help of the Almighty. I don't have all the answers beforehand. I'm, I'm, I'm studying this, trying to really understand it before I present it to you. But uh, th- this is the 13th principle. This is not Little League anymore. This is not uh, peewee baseball anymore. This is high heat. And I hope, please, with the help of the Almighty, to continue and hopefully to get more of a sense of an understanding of this principle, principle number 13, the resurrection of the dead. It's great to study with y'all from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.